Vanessa? Hi. Hi, Dom. So, so ready to go. My goodness. Raring. Raring with vim. The hour is late. The, the <laughs> glass of wine is half empty. <laughs> what does this mean? You want to return to it swiftly? I, <laughs> I mean, not that you, it's ever stopped, us recording an intro has ever stopped you before. From, from nursing my wine yes. note night. Never has. I'm saying that I don't have much to keep me here, so. Uh-huh. <laughs> it can all fall apart quickly. Things do fall apart. Today we have, um, I hope I pronounce his name correctly, Jacob Oshangama, who recently released his book, Free Speech. Catchy title. Free Speech, A History from Socrates to Social Media is the book title. Run to your bookstores. Actually, you should run to your bookstores because aside from being... <laughs> Helping them stay alive. No, aside from the book being written just addictively, it's that type of review that that our current moment really deserves. He had it on, on his own podcast, but I, I really recommend just just reading it because... He takes this idea of free speech, which underpins so much of our discussions here and uncertain things and generally in the podcast sphere and mm-hmm. the whatever we are, um, political nomads, but takes it through all the steps of, I guess, Western history, specifically mm-hmm. through the lens of of legal impact how did the legal theories around free speech evolve into what we have today Mm -hmm. so for people who listen to this podcast who i assume are the van diagram overlap of political depressionados and history nerds that book is for you you should Mm -hmm. just you just you should probably read you'll have fun i had i had so much fun and in fact, we did not get to everything we right, wanted to talk about. In fact, I had way too much fun. And I, I do need to apologize because usually I'm a stellar <laughs> podcast host. But um, I, I just received some bad personal news before the interview. And I was a little out of sorts. And I think I completely missed several marks that I, I wanted to get to. First of all, uh, and, and this is the thing that I need to apologize the most. I think we ended up cutting that that piece of embarrassment, but I, I do need to come clean. I have, on record, conflated, confused, mistook the peace of Augsburg with the uh, Treaty of Westphalia, <laughs> which is a oh, shameful, God. shameful thing. They are separated the by a hundred years. Um, they're part of the same Germanic movement towards statehood and uh, the birth of the nation state. There's connection there, but Augsburg was one thing. It gave principalities the autonomy to establish their own uh, version of Christianity, while the Treaty of Westphalia is famously the, the, the early draft of European nation states. So that, that was already a sign, a bad sign that I was not on, on my A game. But I mean, the, the upside of you potentially not being on your A-game is that if you are in the history nerd circle of this Venn diagram more than the political side, there's lots for you to chew on. Yes, I wanted to start the conversation with the more historical journey because it is such a fascinating question how this thing that we just take for granted today about being able to spew all the shit that we contain inside all of the angst and bad takes that have roosted in our minds and we can just put them out there. We mm-hmm. just take it so much for granted mm. and how just 
out of touch, not just with human history, that is, but with human nature. The right. idea that we should be able to do this without some official in uniform coming and dragging us to prison for the, the nasty, dirty thoughts that we have just expressed. Mm -hmm. So how we ended up defying that part of our nature to a point where it's not just codified in law, but also accepted culturally, broadly, as something worth protecting, at least by some, is a fascinating fascinating, non-trivial journey. And that's what Jacob captures in, I'd say, the first two thirds of his book. Just that, that, that intellectual, legal, political um, journey of the West from being part of normal human society to being this perverse <laughs> culture where, where we sanctify the stupid things that people think. Obviously, I'm saying that facetiously because that's amazing. <laughs> All that was to say that my big mistake was that I got so immersed in the, the, the historical travails that I completely, completely lost track of time. So when we finally got to current events, there were many questions that I didn't get to ask. We did talk a lot about current events, though. We did talk about how, paradoxically, it seems like we are at a zenith of free expression. But at the same time, there's a recession. But we didn't go into as much details as I would have liked. We didn't talk about uh, Joe Rogan or the recent op-ed at the New York Times about self-censorship. So I apologize. And I will compensate you, dear listener. I have a specific guest in mind to expand these topics with. Um, but I'm not going to jinx it, so wait and see, or wait and hear. But luckily, Jacob is amazing. So yeah. everything that he says is fascinating. It constantly connects the historical to our current moment, but, um, but definitely to be continued. Mm -hmm. uh, and you mentioned uh, Jacob's podcast, which, which we also recommend, which is a clear and present danger. So if you are not into reading and you're more into listening, you'll get a lot of the content that's in the book in that podcast, which is also really, really great to check out as well. I, before we actually go into the conversation, there are just two points that we should uh, address. One of them is a piece of the conversation that was um, important for me to get to and we didn't was, um, although we were building towards it a little bit, was this question of self-censorship. We talk in with Jacob about free speech as a matter of law, as something that um, either your your uh, government or your neighbors police you, whether it's by by state or by culture. But the idea that at some point you can absorb censorious tendencies and in internalize them to the point where you just don't dare to make certain utterances in the first place is something that kind of eludes that distinction because you can have the strongest protections of free speech and you can have the, you know, officially the strongest sense that nobody is going to rat you out in your neighborhood and still have some inhibition in the back of your mind as a product of a subcurrent that you think that you're going to end up being blamed for saying the wrong things, whether it's on Twitter or family dinners, or that 
you just attribute certain cultural stigma to certain ideas, making you scared of associating yourself with them. But the result is that you start lying or start falsifying your own beliefs. And the result is whatever the opposite of freedom is and is grotesque. I mean, we talked a little bit about that with Mark Leela um, when he was discussing this, the need to cultivate your own individual garden of kind of intellectual delight, <laughs> I guess, that doesn't need to kowtow to whatever you're supposed to read or think or enjoy. Uh, and I think he was he was proposing a, 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 a kind of, a, God, for lack of a better term, safe space <laughs> to in your own life in order to kind of escape the, I think he was suggesting them kind of more censorious attitudes of, of society today where it is a bit more difficult to admit what it is you're thinking or or pondering or enjoying at any one moment or other. You're, I think you're presenting Mark Leela's ideas accurately. Mm. The question is, is this sufficient right. for free is that speech? Enough you, to uh, create a protection, I guess. <laughs> can, you, can you live in that walled garden or, right. or is the waves of self-censorship going to come in anyway? Right. And no, but I mean the question of whether you can end up changing your own mind internally. That's one of the premises of 1984, right? Controlling the language and refining the technology of policing and punishment to the point where people can't even think seditiously, not even in their own garden or diary, as is the case with Winston Smith. But even if we are still, I, I, I'm not convinced that that's, truly a reality but what is a reality is that people have bad ideas internally and are afraid to express them have quote-unquote mm. bad ideas have ideas that societies sees as morally tainted and as with everything that is morally tainted society puts a cost a social cost on having these ideas and while on one hand it makes perfect sense that society should clearly circumscribe certain ideas as beyond the pale, like we no longer consider slavery as part of our conversation. But at the same time, we should be worried about creating a society in which people are afraid to speak honestly, because the people who are afraid to speak out their awful ideas aren't really having their minds changed. If anything, they, they, they cling more strongly to the things that they can't speak openly. Is that what you call the Streisand effect? No, the Streisand effect is drawing attention to something by forcing people not to talk about this. Mm, mm. When you ban a book, you suddenly introduce it to people who may have never heard of it before and make them want to read right, it. Right, 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 right. So it's kind of like that, but on an individual I, it's level, worse. Kinda. No, it's worse than that, I would say, because when you are telling people not to talk about a certain idea and you don't give them the space to have them publicly debated, you're basically sending the people who have those bad ideas to go out and seek like-minded um, outcasts. And, and then rather than being challenged and coming to contact with, with, with opposition and, and conflict, those ideas get tunneled into the, the silo of panderers. And the ideas aren't likely to get cultivated or, or made more nuanced under those conditions. They will become more radical um, and dumb because 
when you're not, when you don't meet people who disagree with you, your opinions become worse. They become more shallow. They become boring. That's the whole fucking point. But even beyond that objection, what value is there in something like free speech if in a supposed free society, if you're not allowed to have your dumb ideas heard in a forum? That's, it sounds so absurd to me that the, you know, people who proclaim to be defenders of democracy or of liberal values or whatever would, would just so easily brush off one of the absolutely fundamental things that define, both define and justify democracy. Um, I mean, it's not new. As as Jacob points out, there's been a lot of supposed proponents of free speech who backtrack mighty quickly as soon as the speech touches on something that they don't want to be discussed or they don't agree with or that it makes them look bad. Like the 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 free even the 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 strongest free speech advocate has has limits, at least as history shows us. There are few few kind of radical martyrs in the free speech world. Yeah, because as I said at the beginning, it's not just historically abnormal for us to like free speech. It's just right. it's just an outside of human nature. Right. We don't want to hear things that make us unhappy, uncomfortable, or threatened. That's just our nature. Right. Which is why we we need to bolster and protect it, which is... Uh, and not just free speech, right? I mean, does this take us to our second uh, housekeeping item? Adam? Yes. Because <laughs> it's not just free speech that's at risk at this moment. It's also... Democracy itself. Um, and part of the reason why we, we wanted to talk to to Jacob is because we are kind of going forth on a little series here where we're we're gonna be talking to people about the topic of democracy and why it's at risk and why we need to preserve it. So for the next couple of weeks, us and a bunch of other podcasters have uh, join with a group called uh, Represent Us. Which is a, a nonpartisan organization. And right. the idea is that, you know, in banding together, we will spread the word about, you know, protecting things like elections and, and all those good things that we like and, and right. require for a functioning liberal society. Obviously, this is a theme that we care about globally, internationally, um, but Represent Us is focused on on what's going on here. Following the election, we've seen more and more people that seem to be on a quest to curtail a suite of rights associated with liberal democracy. And it's frustrating because, you know, it's, it's something that we talked about with, with your spouse a few months ago, with Zev. This is not you. From, from the earliest days of American democracy, um, we've seen versions of gerrymandering and uh, attempts to create voting restrictions. Obviously, there were voting restrictions in place when the Constitution was signed. Like free speech, democracy is one of those things that people really don't want the other team to have. (laughs) And I think this this is one of the themes that we've been talking about from the very start of this podcast, because this is one of those things that I had not examined, really, like why liberal democracy matters. And in our very first interview with Tomar Persico, I asked him to just define liberal democracy and explain explain to me why it's why it is precious, because this is something that you were you had kind of come in as like 
baseline assumption, we need it. And I wanted to, having never really thought about it that much, I wanted to unpack it and understand why. And I think throughout the course of the of the podcast, I've been I've been kind of come asking different people this question again and again. And what I'm starting to what I'm starting to understand is that the all of the things that we kind of take for granted in in our society today are things that are really only afforded us by liberal democracy. Things like free speech, for example, uh, things kind of like like it, you know values that we hold dear in 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 our in our in society. And like you said, like these are not things that were easily won. These are not things that are easily held together. These are things that are fragile and are vulnerable and unfortunately are not seen as such. And so they keep getting battered, uh, attacked, taken down by different means and by different sides in different ways. Uh, And so it's one of those things that you actually do have to think about preserving, bolstering, uh, and taking stands. Buttressing. Word of the pod. Um, and and kind of taking a stand to protect, um, because it is by it is by maintaining a, a liberal democracy that we are able to enjoy the 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 freedoms and the diversity and the inclusion and all the things that we we all the things we little liberals say that we want <laughs> in society. <laughs> it, so. Oh my god! It sounds like I successfully brainwashed you, Vanessa. It's almost yeah, scary. It is scary, isn't it? It is. Uh, yeah, I mean, scary. I mean, I think you should snap out of it. So, I mean. <laughs> Precisely for the reason I mentioned earlier, I do not want to get complacent in my shallow liberalism. I mean, I thank God I still have tanks like Batya to argue with. <laughs> I name checked her two episodes in a row, so I just had to complete this uh, trio. I mean, I think you have definitely like dragged me a little bit from my positions, but I don't think I'm all the way over. So there's still there's still more to drag. <laughs> there's still more to go. One hopes. One hopes. So uh, you know, I you know you know what's really fun is that we can have. Um, this um, meandering conversation as an appetizer for an even longer meandering conversation. It's yeah. such a great concept. <laughs> Who came up with it? Oh, man. It's very on brand, I guess. And, and I hope you don't resent us this conversation. And um, I hope you don't resent it so much so that you actually wish to show us our, your support and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts because that makes us happy. And of course, that allows us to reach more people. Yes, and we we didn't mention but if you if you are interested in this uh democracy the other podcasts who are doing democracy themed content and kind of in supporting the cause you just can go to represent.us/podcast and you can learn more about that. Yes, you can do that. I think I think I ranted out everything I needed to and with that hopefully not too self-deprecating note. Jacob Mishingala. Jacob or, or Jacob? Jacob? Whatever, whatever, <laughs> okay. whatever you prefer. <laughs> oh, that's the worst. I'm, I have OCD. I can't make arbitrary choices. But um, <laughs> Jacob slash Jacob, thank yeah. you for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. I, I'm looking forward to, to this conversation. As I said, I, I, I wrote to you uh, just as I was finishing your your book, um, which is, which I, well, I, I love for several reasons. Obviously, the topic of free speech is um, Near and dear to Adam's heart. Right. And, 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 and it's like very, very of the moment for a lot of people. But the perspective that you took to it is the angle of a, of a legal scholar, which is even closer to my heart. Can you give us a, a quick elevator buyer in terms of how you're coming into this topic? So I uh, was born and raised in 
cozy secular liberal uh, Denmark. Um, and uh, I think for, for much of the 90s and sort of the early 2000s, uh, I, like like many other in the West, but maybe especially in my part of the, of, of the world, took free speech for granted. It was like breathing the air. Um, and then Denmark suddenly became sort of the epicenter of a global battle of values between uh, free speech and religion as a Danish newspaper published a number of cartoons depicting the, the Muslim prophet Muhammad, which set off sort of a, a huge... A debate and, and, and a violent one. Um, so one of the editors who later became my friend he still lives with uh, 24 hours security. Lots of terrorist mm-hmm. attacks have been foiled. And one of the reasons why the French uh, magazine, Jali Hebdo, was murderously attacked by jihadists was because they was one of the, they were one of the few magazines that showed solidarity and, and republished these cartoons. Um, and, and so so, so uh, this debate arose in, in, in Denmark and, and other places in the world, sort of what does free speech mean? You know, suddenly some of those who would normally have seen themselves as defenders of free speech said, you know, oh, but free speech can't be used to punch down on vulnerable minorities and it has to be used uh, in a responsible manner uh, and essentially arguing for blasphemy <laughs> codes that, that should should be be respected in, in the West, at least when it came to certain groups. And uh, on the right, people were sort of free speech absolutists. But then I saw sort of these positions change. Um, so later on, uh, right-wing government came into power uh, and suddenly a number of laws were adopted that were, um, everyone knew, even if they were formally neutral, everyone understood they were, they were aimed at sort of Muslim uh, extremists, but so curtailing religious uh, uh, speech. Uh, and then suddenly, you know, people on the left who would be worried about the cartoon said, oh, this is a, a terrible violation of free speech, while, while people on the right were saying, well, free speech is important, but if we allow this kind of speech, you know, we'll undermine democracy and, and speech uh, as such. And and uh, I saw these sort of um, tribalist uh, positions on free speech uh, and, and people sort of... Uh, rejecting principle and, and using sometimes free speech as sort of an ideological prop almost uh, to bolster underlying uh, positions. So I, I was interested in if, how, and why free speech is so important, because we all claim, you know, most of us claim that it's important, but often we're also willing to to, to, to compromise. Right, and there so, are limits. Right. There, yeah, there are limits. Like in the U.S., you can't have a discussion before someone says, oh, you can't you sh- uh, you know, shout fire in a crowd of right. people. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a favorite. <laughs> but um, I even texted Vanessa last night, make sure that we get to fire. That's a, that's a sticking point for me. It sounds it's, it's a journey that I feel a lot of us have have underwent in you have those two familiar stages first your encounter with the fragility of mm. free speech a lot of people had that with uh, uh Salman Rushdie affair everybody encounters the first excuse that um authority uses to limit free speech as a and, and remembers that as an important moment mm. and then the next step is encountering uh free speech hypocrisy that the, mm. the the people that you thought were um, of the same mind in terms of the importance of preserving free speech revealed that they actually have limitations just on the other side or on other issues. Exactly. Yeah, yeah it's it's what I in the book call Milton's curse. Um, after the the, uh, the English author John Milton, who who wrote sort of a much celebrated defense of press freedom, Eropagitica, in, in 1644. But when you read it more closely, it turns out that censorship is fine if it's aimed at Catholics and atheists and people with immoral ideas. And really, 
press freedom for Milton is mostly just various reformed Protestant mainline sects. Uh, <laughs> just curious, historically, who was the first thinker to advocate for kind of a radical free speech in the way that I guess we conceptualize as no, wait, not... wait, wait. I feel like that's a spoiler. Because... Okay. We're going to come back to that question. Yes. All right. <laughs> I actually time to think. Because <laughs> I want to start definitely be- way before radical free speech mm. um, or maybe, maybe not before, but I, I want to set the stage uh, properly w- with this. So we're, we're going to get to Vanessa's questions and we're going to get to discussion of, of the current state of free speech. But we have very different ideas of, of what constitutes free speech. And, yeah. and you start by um, trying to answer at least two or three big questions. Whose speech? What is encompassed by that freedom? And who protects that speech? Or what protections are we looking for? In your book, you start by talking about the, the Athenian democracy and the difference between, um, uh, tell me if I'm pronouncing it incorrectly, uh, parousia and isigoria. Yeah. My, my background is in Latin, not in ancient Greek. So I, <laughs> uh, no, I'm, 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 I'm sadly I, I, uh, I don't read or, or speak Greek, and certainly not ancient Greek <laughs> either. Um, yeah, no, but I, I think you know, obviously, uh, there's a there's a lot of, of things about ancient history we don't know. So maybe we're doing injustice to some civilization uh, somewhere in the world that had uh, an uh, elaborate concept of free speech that we just are not aware of. Uh, but as far as I can tell. The concept of free speech uh, originated, you know, in the Athenian democracy some 2,500 years ago. Uh, and as you rightly mentioned, um, two concepts, two overlapping concepts of free speech. So one was a isigoria, which means equality of speech, which is ma- basically political uh, speech. So it's uh, the right of free, freeborn male citizens to uh, sp- uh, to discuss and vote on laws uh, at the assembly. So as, as part of the direct Athenian democracy, which really set it apart because even the poor could, uh, could had a direct vote. So it was not a rule by the wealthiest uh, or otherwise necessarily. Um, and then the broader concept of, uh, of parousia, meaning something like uninhibited speech, uh, which uh, was perhaps something like a cultural trade uh, of, of the Athenian democracy. So that's when you went down to the Agora, the marketplace, and you get roasted by uh, Socrates, or you, uh, or, or you know, you are a philosopher and you set up an academy where you are allowed to philosophize, even if uh, if your doctrines uh, are, are very critical of Athenian uh, of Athenian democracy. And so the Athenians are, are sort of proud of their their democracy and the equality of speech, they argue. So Herodotus, the, the grandfather of history, says that before the, the Athenians uh, developed uh, equality of speech, they were unremarkable, but, uh, but then uh, you know, they, they, they found the strength to beat back the Persians. Of course, there's a fair bit of propaganda in this, but, but, but nonetheless, uh, and, and you have the famous funeral oration by, by Pericles, where he also extols the virtues of, of Athenian democracy, including the fact that they deliberate uh, political action before they rush into it. And that was certainly the ideal. It didn't always work out so well for them. And you have someone like uh, Demosthenes who, who says that basically, yeah, here in Athens, you know, you can criticize our constitution and government and you can praise the, our bitter enemies in Sparta. But if you go to Sparta, uh, you, you can only praise the Spartan constitution and you can't say anything nice about Athens. And I think that's really still the litmus test of of free speech, right? That you're able to criticize the government and system under which you live. So I think that sort of sums up the Athenian. Of, of course, there are all kinds of 
you know, it, it was not absolutist free speech. Also, there, there was this problem that they didn't have sort of constitutional individual freedoms. Uh, so as Socrates found out, if you were dragged before a jury court, they could vote the way they want, they wanted. It was not an independent judiciary upholding uh, constitutional rights. And, and that's why a lot of people saw it as a sort of mob rule um, that, that people wanted to avoid. In, in fact, it already brings into light the tension that we're talking about um, in the question of who protects these rights, because the those those qualities were a matter of of norms or of cultural predilections more than any legal uh, legally protected and enforced regulations, which sometimes leads to weird and contradictory results. For instance, with the case of Socrates, I mean the excuses for executing Socrates was um, corruption of youth and, and, and uh, atheism or blasphemy or something mm-hmm. along those lines, if I remember correctly. Yeah. But underlying that as well was the fragility of the Athenian democracy at that particular point in time uh, at the heels of the Peloponnesian um, I can never pronounce that Peloponnesian word. Peloponnesian War, yeah. Peloponnesian <laughs> War, yeah. yeah. Goddamn the Greeks. But that, that created an interesting paradox within Athenian democracy where on one hand, the democratic qualities, the, the legacy of Pericles that they were trying to preserve included that kind of, of, of lavish, uninhibited speech. But on the other hand, they couldn't afford actually the dissent that might undermine democracy or undermine the the structures that that unite the the, the demos. So already that moment has that paradox, right? Yes, yeah. You know, you could you could argue that uh, the Athenians became uh, militant democracy uh, d- democrats uh, before the before the concept of militant democracy. In that Socrates himself, of course, you know, Socrates was not a, a fan of of democracy, um, um, and even though he was a prolific practitioner of of uh, of parousia. I'm not sure he he saw it uh, as, uh, as, as as the greatest value when it came to sort of the the un, uneducated but he had very close relationships to some of those these oligarchic types who overthrew the Athenian uh, democracy and so uh, the, the Athenians no longer saw him uh, as, as someone who enriched their culture and democracy they saw him as a national security threat um, and also, you know, it, it, it was not it was not a secular state. So, so even though um, it was pretty tolerant by by, by later standards, um, there were limits to what you could do and say uh, about religion. And so, when Socrates sort of was thought to introduce new divinities, uh, then in that specific national security context, that that was seen as a threat. Uh, since the gods might might punish him. And of course, you know, scholars still continue, you know, what were the precise specific reasons why he was, he right, was right. executed? Uh, was it political? Was it religious? Was it a mix? Uh, we don't really I, have a lot of unbiased accounts of that. We uh, don't have a lot of unbiased uh, accounts. And uh, sadly, the live recordings have been lost. Uh, <laughs> the archives lost of, the C-SPAN feed. Yeah. You mentioned militant democracy, though, even though that's jumping a few millennia ahead. Can you <laughs> explain that? Yeah, so so uh, and, and maybe we'll get to it later. So this may be one of the hopefully more provocative uh, chapters of of the book. So in in Europe, <clears throat> one of the main reasons for for limiting free speech, even in, in in democracies, is the ethos of never again, which of course I, I very strongly believe in. But and and, and that argues that uh, in order to avoid the horrors uh, of of 
the Second World War and and of course, especially the Holocaust, the demonization of a of of, of a minority, ultimately ending up in the industrial star, uh, scale genocide, uh, sort of means that democracies have to limit the most hateful uh, anti-democratic uh, sentiments. And and it was something that was suggested already in 1937 by a, a German immigrant professor called Karl Levenstein, who, who went to Colombia and wrote these very influential um, articles where he said that European democracies had, had, had gravely sinned by being too tolerant of fascist movements and had to be much more um, much more intolerant of intolerance, as Karl Popper uh, later said. And, and I, I, I argue that that I don't think the the history of the Weimar Republic and and, it, and, and the rise of the Third Reich bears out that argument. Uh, though I will say that I don't try to explain the the demise of the Weimar Republic and the rise of the Third Reich through the narrow lens of censorship and, and free speech. I think that would... In fact, if I remember correctly, you say something along the lines is not only is that not the only cause, it's probably one of the least important causes. Yeah, no, that was a little incident you know, called like World War One. There was a Russian uh, revolution. There was a, a crack on Wall Street. You know, there was a, a lack of, of, <laughs> of democratic history and, and strong institutions. So, so those were... Tradition. Yeah. This obviously connects to current events, in, in at least in the way that we're thinking about where the limits of free speech should or shouldn't be drawn. Now we have this giant gap of 2,000 years of <laughs> um, what we we'll broadly call Western history. Can you take us just through what you see as the key points? And maybe in that process, we can touch what Vanessa is asking about the earliest articulation or articulations of radical free speech. I definitely just want to make sure that we go through um, the, the Dark Ages and the Muslim world, because that's a chapter about free speech that I, I don't often encounter. Yeah, so I think it's important, you know, to contrast Athenian free speech with the Roman free speech. Uh, and Adam, this is maybe where you're more of an expert. Since oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm all about libertas. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, if you read Tacitus, and uh, you, you'll see lots of references to, to uh to free speech, but generally, the, 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 in the Roman Republic, free speech is more for the elite, so it's top down rather than bottom up. Uh, so, in as opposed to to Athenian assemblies, ordinary citizens don't have a right to to speak, and it'll be sort of the senatorial elite, maybe like Cicero, Cato, and and those guys who 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 uh, who exercise uh, free speech, and and Cicero is very very clear that you know he says oh i love uh, greek culture and philosophy uh, but you know what the very reason why you know greece founder was because of uh, you know uh, egalitarian democracy of the mob you know they elected these all those wanton babbling exactly the, the unwashed ill-educated mob that you gave the right to decide the matters of state even though they were completely uneducated and everything went to hell didn't go so well for Cicero and <laughs> and and his uh, generation either. You could say, even though they they, they wanted to preserve the republic, uh, didn't, didn't didn't really play out that well. But but that was the the theory, and I think it's interesting for Cicero, at least the way that history tells that story, and obviously it has a lot of retroactive embellishments. But it was probably his finest free speech moment of actually doing something that was in what we might call um, seditious or subversive. Yeah, no, and and the, the, he, there's, there's lots of uh, things that he writes also sort of under the rule of, of Caesar. He, he does favor free speech, but he favors sort of a more of an elitist free speech conception. And, and, yes, and, yes. and we will see 
you know, that, that become the tension between egalitarian and, and elitist free speech, I, I find, is a recurrent phenomenon throughout the history of free speech. And maybe in particular right now in the age of the Internet and social media. So what we typically will see is that whenever there's a technological or political development that broadens the public sphere to previously muted um, groups, uh, whether, you know, it's the poor and propertyless, women, racial, religious minorities, the, the elites, the institutional gatekeepers who have a privileged access to shape the public sphere have this existential dread of what will happen uh, when the unwashed mob is given access to the, to the public sphere. And, 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 and we see that again and again, I think, throughout history. And I think the elitist conception of free speech is, is you know, in, initially has the strongest pull on early Enlightenment uh, uh, thinkers. So they look more to Rome than, than, than to Greece. But 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 uh, when it comes to the Middle Ages, as you rightly said, um, the Abbasid Caliphate or and the sort of adjacent lands is, is, a, is an interesting case because it's it's a very fertile intellectual uh, environment. So you have some of the the most radical free thinkers of of, of the medieval era, people like Razi, this Persian polymath, who 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 essentially uh, and just for listeners who are not necessarily familiar, the Abbasid Empire is. The, the most expansive um, Muslim caliphate, I think, in history uh, at the golden age of Islam and um, was from around the 8th century to the 14th, I think. Yeah, yeah and, 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 you know, at certain times, they don't really have established control in, in all their lands. And I think that's part of the reasons why, 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 why it's fertile ground, because centralized command and control of, of information uh, tends to inhibit uh, free speech. But they, the caliphs essentially translate uh, almost all secular Greek works of, of, of philosophy and science, uh, and and in, and and also advocate sort of a um, an understanding of Islam, which leaves more scope for for using pagan philosophy, uh, including Aristotle, uh, and 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 so that puts less emphasis, I think, on on hard, harsh religious orthodoxy. And you have uh, all these great um, um, thinkers and, and, and philosophers who will inspire events later on in, in the Western uh, world. Uh, and, and as I said, some of the most radical free thinkers who who emphasize, you know, the role of reason as the ultimate arbiter of, of, of things rather than religious orthodoxy, who reject prophecy, who who reject uh, the, uh, the the divine authority of holy books. Uh, so pretty radical, radical. These are like tiny minorities. It's not like a movement, but but they are sort of radical ideas that we can pick up from the scraps and pieces that have survived. So there, there were a small group of of radical thinkers within this caliphate, and they weren't they weren't re- rejected. They weren't well, tortured. Like that. They, what were they, the consequences? They were certainly rejected. You know. Uh, so uh, um, so for one of them, we only have r- really. The, his his furious opponents' uh, descriptions of of what he <laughs> of, of of what he said and, and wrote, which means you know we can't be we can't be sure uh, of, of you know, but but it certainly seems like he was a, um, a a radical, and you know there are different accounts. One of them says that he had to flee persecution, and, and he was certainly sort of hounded, uh, but 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 not you know executed or uh, or imprisoned, but. The, the fact that, that their writings on these things don't survive might suggest that uh, later generations uh, saw, <laughs> right. were, were not great fans. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I love how much of the history of our historical quote unquote heroes is told through the lens of their enemies. Right. Um, yeah. I, I mentioned it before in the podcast, but my, one of my favorite Bernard Russell quotes is, if there's one thing that can make me appreciate Plato, it's Aristotle's attacks against him. <laughs> It's a bit of a frustrating exercise, often sort of trying to to piece together uh, these things, uh, and and sort of when you have like a money quote, you know, seen from from our perspective, it, it's like wow, this is great stuff. Well, while you know, at the time, it might have been sort of embellished by an <laughs> opponent to make him look uh, right. as bad as possible. Right, right, right. <laughs> he wasn't as nearly as radical yeah. right. as his opponents made him, and that wow, he was so ahead of his time. Yeah. <laughs> And that actually happens um, a lot over uh, sexuality in history, doesn't it? Because often people try to depict their enemies as more licentious and depraved than they are. And then you go back and read it a thousand years later, and you're like, oh, wow, they were so sexually progressive. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, but just to round off the, med- the medieval uh, times, then, you know, I think in, in Western Europe, there are sort of two developments that pulls in, in different directions. So you have, you know, the... Uh, the establishment of universities where where um, pagan philosophy is is gradually advances uh, there's there's a lot of pushback in, initially um, but it suddenly it but ultimately becomes orthodoxy and and I think that has huge consequences for how uh, for the knowledge and dissemination of, of philosophy and science uh, in, in later centuries in, in Europe but of course at the same time you also have the medieval Inquisition. Which uh, tries, uh, which, which very much pulls things in the other direction, which sort of uh, tries to establish a religious orthodoxy that can ultimately end up with people being being burned, imprisoned, and, and, and tortured. You know, even though the numbers of people who were who were who were executed uh, were not as dramatic as as once believed, I think we can be pretty certain that you know if if you lived in a village somewhere in Germany and France and suddenly the Inquisition come along and, you know, you have a lot of people being put up on uh, on, on, uh, on a scaffold and, and being shamed in front of people and some of them are burned, that will have uh, a certain effect on your willingness to question <laughs> religious uh, beliefs and, 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 will, and will have a, an effect in, in terms of, of self-censorship. And I imagine but, that the university scholars weren't the ones no, being exactly. and, pulled and, and, and up this, onto the scaffold. There were actually relatively few, quite few, cases being brought, sort of legal cases being brought against academics. And I think this may have something to do, again, with this elitist uh, egalitarian conception. So uh, the church might grudgingly accept that you have a small, tiny elite of well-educated scholars who speak Greek and Latin and, and sort of push the boundaries of, of orthodoxy. But it's a very different thing to have ordinary people question the authority of, of the church and, and, and religious orthodoxy. So that's something that you want to avoid at all costs, sort of a popular spread of heterodox ideas. Let's fast forward. Obviously, we have the Reformation and the printing press Nobody really needs um, um, any reminder how revolutionary the uh, the, the printing, printing press was. Yeah. Well, getting to what Jakob was saying too, it's like whenever there's a technological right, exactly. movement yeah. that it broadens the scope, that was one of the biggest. Yeah. Right. 
And with right. that, and, and 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 even today, every time we have these conversations, and we, it happened so many times, happened with Martin Gurry. Uh huh. Um, oh, he's great. Man, I love his book. We, yeah. he, he's he's phenomenal. Yeah, great. Um, happened um uh with Matt Welch too. Yep. Every time that we talk about the throes of debate on social media, they basically say, "Deal with it. This is what happens when you have technological changes." A debate that is ongoing. But yeah, so to, to, to take us through what happens after the, the print revolution and um, not to nudge in any direction, but also tell us why Spinoza was the most important person for radical free speech. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you know, the, the, the printing press and, and, and Martin Luther is obviously a very explosive cocktail because he, he uses right. it uh, basically to invent the art of, of religious populism, writing in German, writing short punchy pamphlets, using cartoons as memes, appealing to the masses, translating the New Testament uh, into to German and, and insisting that children be taught how to read. But then, lo and behold, people who start reading don't necessarily have the same interpretation of Christianity as Martin Luther. And, and so Martin Luther, along with, with other <laughs> reformers, actually become as censorious and persecutorial as, as the Catholic uh, Church. But, but I think, you know, out of that, religious uh, turmoil um, grows a grudging acceptance of, uh, of, of religious uh, tolerance, uh, basically. Um, but interestingly, the, the, the first sort of places of, of religious tolerance uh, and religious freedom, even on an individual level, we find in Central and Eastern Europe. So you find that in Transylvania, you find that in, in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, um, where even um, where, where even anti-trinitarians who were like seen as uh, some of the worst of the worst, uh, they had, had a right to to practice uh, their faith. Um, um, but but the Dutch Republic, fast forwarding towards approaching Spinoza, um, um, the northern Dutch provinces threw off uh, Spanish Habsburg rule, and then um, religious. Freedom or freedom of conscience became sort of a constitutional um, uh, element, uh, even though Catholics were not <laughs> protected, uh, and and religious tolerance was was so so. But it basically created this decentralized entity with very very weak central political um, authority, so the provinces could have their own rules, uh, and it that was a relatively cosmopolitan. Atmosphere, uh, culture in in cities like Amsterdam. There was a, a lot of emphasis on on commercialism, I- including printing books, which Dutch printers and publishers could then sell in European states with a, with, uh, with 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 a lot stricter censorship. And so, a culture, you if you like, of free speech developed, and and the Dutch Republic became the printing house of Europe. So, printed many more books. These weekly newspapers emerged, uh, and, uh, and and people from different faiths were living together, which made it much more difficult to impose religious authority, even though the Reformed Church tried. And, and so you could have someone uh, like Spinoza come along, who first, you know, got excommunicated by, <laughs> by, by, uh, by the Jewish community, and then... Um, wrote his anonymous uh, theological political treatise in, in 1670, uh, which argues that, that free speech is uh, a natural right and, and uh, essential in, in, uh, in a state, and to, to limit it is tyrannical. Um, and and so, so I think Spinoza's defense of free speech is, 
is really important. Even though, you know, if you go to England, you have the levelers um, in the 1640s, who I think might be the most radical of, of the 17th century when it, when it comes to sort of, and, and in many ways are uh, sort of the early modern proponents of egalitarian, uh, free and equal speech with uh, with unacknowledged uh, roots in, in the Athenian uh, in the Athenian model, even if even even if they were in favor of representative rather than direct democracy, a much more radical defense of free speech than John Milton, who's their contemporary, uh, who, who as you know I alluded to in the beginning, uh, did not advocate the, the the free speech for for Catholics, and you know who was in favor of harsh blasphemy laws, and who ended up serving as a censor <laughs> under Cromwell. Um, wow. So I, I, I've often sort of regretted that the history of the levelers seems to have been uh, forgotten. You know, we talk about John Milton, we lionize him today, but no one talks about William Warren or Richard Overton, uh, John Lilburn. Uh, they, they are sort of known only by by, by specialist scholars. Um, mm. um, uh, so, so I think you know they, they may be sort of the earliest really radical proponents of democracy in the early. In the early modern era, but they quickly fade away. But if you look at what they argue, you know, you can, f- in many ways, it's an early uh, um, uh, idea of what would later be enshrined in the First Amendment and, and the U.S. Constitution, hmm. the ideas of, of, of the levelers. If you look at, at Madison, for instance, I don't think he specifically references uh, the levelers, but the ideas in many ways are, are very similar. We can't really talk about how free speech was treated or even conceived of during those periods or these different groups without understanding the context of the things that they were struggling against, the sort of censorship that they saw as most pernicious. Like you get the rhetoric of the American Revolution very much derived from the, the British Civil War, but now we're looking at it as a universalizable concept, even though it's very hard to to really square whether or not when you read the declaration about inalienable rights that seem to speak of, of universal uh, concepts. Put aside the obvious hypocrisies of slavery and all the, the, the incongruities, because <laughs> even, even without slavery, it's difficult to imagine that they really were trying to hand down the the universal truth of humanity as opposed to respond to their political plights. Yeah, or, or, or you know... You know that there might be differences between them um, in, in to which degree they 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 thought of, of these freedoms as, as truly uh, as truly universal. I think you know someone like you know if you go to France, someone like Condorcet, for instance, seems to me to be someone who really believes in universal freedom. So he's you know an early. Uh, a very, he's probably the most radical French philosopher in terms of his defense of free speech, but he's also against slavery. He's in favor of 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 uh, the equality of the sexes. You know, he doesn't believe in in, in punishing homosexuality, and, and so, so you know, uh, believes in this full civil rights for Jews uh, and so on. So, so in that sense, I think there are some who who are sort of truly radical. Uh, whereas whereas others uh, <laughs> are are less so, and of course among among uh, founders and framers, you also have the split between the elitist and the and the and the egalitarian free speech conception that you see break out uh, in in seventeen ninety eight with the Sedition Act, um, very you know seven years after the the First Amendment has been ratified in, 
1791, you suddenly have, you know, your Hamiltons, your Adams, and your and your Washingtons, who who believe that you know the press has gone too far, and you have hmm. your Madison and, and your Jeffersons who who uh, who see the, this edition act as a total repudiation of uh, of the First Amendment and, and the ideals that it's supposed to embody. But even there, pointedly, partly it's because Madison and Jefferson are on the losing side of persecution. Uh, well, mm. well, yeah, you know, even Jefferson is someone who's who's liable to become afflicted by Milton's curse. So, you know, but you know, he gives a great speech. He he wins the the eighteen hundred election. He his first inaugural address is in eighteen oh one when he assumes the presidency, and he gives this this great. Uh, speech where he says, you know, we should settle our differences through debate and, and not using uh, the law. And he doesn't revive the Sedition Act. But in 1803, he gets so tired of being dragged through the mud in the Federalist press that he sort of uh, writes these private letters that maybe it would be a good idea with a few prosecutions under under <laughs> under state law. Um, so 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 in that sense, he too. Uh, Compromised, uh, and even you know, I think someone like Tom Paine would, would definitely be someone who, who who saw Enlightenment values as universal. But even he, you know, when he was in France, there's, there's a moment where he says, you know, we have to to clamp down on calumny because calumny is eroding all authority, and and you know, he can see the sort of the terror spinning out of control, and of course, he very nearly mm. uh, is uh, beheaded. <laughs> himself. So that, that goes to the big question, one of the big questions that free speech this is something that even its uh, most ardent advocates really can't stomach. They, under pressure, right? Under pre- right? I mean, when there's, when there's wait, the illusion of stability, then it's all great to be right. an advocate. But as soon as there's a sense of vulnerability, that's when it's really hard to stick to your, to your guns. Vulnerability or when you're on the, on the, on the sharp On the losing yeah, end. Think, yeah, and, and, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. I think when we sense that we're under threat and, and the ideas and values of, of the society that we live in are, are being threatened by movements or, or individuals and their ideas is, is when we tend to sort of revert to our, maybe our human default mode of, of, of uh, evolved intolerance, whereas, uh, where, whereas tolerance and free speech are something that we've had to, to build on top of. Cultivate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you certainly see that again and again, and I think human beings are extremely skilled at developing elaborate arguments as to why on this specific subject, free speech should not uh, should not apply, you know, uh, and, and our confirmation bias allows us to 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 construct these elaborate arguments, legal, philosophical, of of you know why allowing this kind of speech would really undermine free speech as such, uh, and 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 we can say it and, and believe it, even though you know if if someone we we disagreed with used the same arguments for their position, we would vehemently uh, we would vehemently disagree. Mm. Well, and I mean, despite all of the pressures that have been put on free speech throughout different moments of American history, I, I would imagine that you you would argue and correct me if I'm wrong, but I would imagine that you'd argue that the uh, American example is one of the more successful examples of a country that has supposedly embraced free speech. And I'm wondering if you agree with that, where where do you derive that? success is it because of the laws that were written at the very beginning at the at the founding is it because of the culture that has kind of pushed for it is it the intersection of the two where do you where do you locate that success yeah no i think you know uh, you know 
when you look at the the law, the interpretation of the First Amendment, you really have to get to the 1950s before it sort of really consistently applied to to a very high and and, and culminating maybe in 1969 with Brandenburg versus Ohio uh, that really sets the bar extremely high and sort of enshrines American free speech exceptionalism. But nonetheless, uh, it's true that so you know you had the Sedition Act, but that this, you know. Prior to that, you've had the terror in France, and 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 then Napoleon's sort of authoritarianism uh, coming after uh, coming after that, and all around Europe, the the French Revolution sets in in motion forces of reaction that, uh, and and at the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1814-1815, basically Europe reverts to. Uh, the dedication of throne and, and altar and, you know, free speech should be kept under lock and key. And and that's not true to the same extent uh, at all in, in the U.S., though the big exception, of course, being the antebellum South, where where you have, especially in the 1830s, very, very draconian laws prohibiting abolitionist ideas, even prescribing the death penalty. Uh, but, but, it, but, but, you know, if we can, if we can set aside from that, I don't know if that's possible, but 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 you know I would say that in in, in seventeen thirty five the, there's there's a big the Sanger case so you basically have this uh, public official in in, in New York who starts, sets up his own newspaper use it as a propaganda tool and then his opponents set up a rival newspaper where they relentlessly attack him and then uh, he tries to bring these uh, seditious uh, libel uh, suits against them the, uh, can't persuade a grand jury, uh, but then he goes after the publisher, and then the publisher loses the case, even though the law is completely on the side um, of, of, of this politician, uh, the jury just refuses uh, to convict him. And and that really becomes a moment where uh, Americans are no longer willing to convict um, their their. Um, their uh, co-citizens as uh, for, for seditious libel for criticizing their governors, and and that is born, I think, out of a culture of free speech where Americans, you know, using pamphlets, speaking in taverns, and so on, and also just with with different, you know, moving across the uh, uh, lines of, of colonies with with different with different jurisdictions allows for for a culture of free speech that is more permissive uh, than than than, uh, than in. Than in Europe, so even though the First Amendment does not provide strong legal protection for much of its history, there's a wider degree of, of commitment to a culture of free speech than in Europe. Just to, so the the to be clear about the details, the New York state laws allowed for harsher libel persecution against a publisher, and and basically the the jury was was essentially a hung jury. They decided no, no. Well, basically, it's like a scene out of a, of, of a movie. Basically, you're not. You can't really criticize uh, politicians uh, in, in uh, because that that is seen as as seditious uh, libel, and especially if you mock them, poke fun of them, and, and accuse them of uh, of of, of, of uh, unflattering uh, things. Uh, and so the law is is basically on the side. And truth is not a defense. Um, so so even if what you're saying is true, truth is not a defense. But then you know this uh, this this very experienced trial lawyer comes up. You know, it's, imagine this is a movie. You know, the 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 the, the judge is uh, is very much in the favor of uh, of this politician. Uh, and uh, and then at the last moment, you have this experienced trial lawyer goes up 
and, and gives this great speech, rousing everyone in the courtroom. Uh, and then the jury just uh, returns and says, you know, we, we're not going to convict, the, we're not going to convict you. You know, uh, this is the free speech is the bulwark of liberty. Uh, and then, uh, and, and then there's a cheer uh, outside the courtroom, and so it creates this momentum for uh, for for free speech and, and political free speech, robust political free speech. And you also see uh, Americans using symbolic free speech um, to 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 further political uh, ideas. So so that creates a more robust culture of free speech, something that would never be allowed in old regime France, for instance, where you'd probably be. Uh, be executed or, or spent several years in the Bastille if you, if you did similar things. So this is really meaningful uh, to me because a conversation that I find myself having a lot is the is that the culture versus law importance of free speech or the, right. the prima facie legal protections of free speech compared to how important cultural is. I've I've, I've been I've been accused by by members of of this household <laughs> that that I put too much emphasis on on on. Uh, cultural history and cultural uh, political thinking. And my position is that a lot of those notions of liberty really are nothing more than how the culture interprets them. And in, in, in contrast, a different argument that we find ourselves sometimes having um, is the question of critical race theory is something that we talk often in this podcast because I've studied critical legal theory as an Israeli student intrigued by American legal quiddities. Some of the some of the the ideas there are incredibly important and revealing when you're trying to apply some of, some of the stuff that we've done done in this conversation, like understanding that ideas that even sound universal aren't really universal and that come from a very rooted in an historical context. And sometimes the hypocrisies and corruption is embedded in the lofty language. But and this is where I I, I draw my line in that conversation. The fact that those hypocrisies and evils may have existed doesn't mean that the way that we have then absorbed those lofty ideas into our culture isn't worth protecting. And that's that's why I, th- I put so much emphasis on culture, because ultimately the things that we care about, like free expression and open democratic civil society, depend on how we interpret our own stories, how we interpret those ideals. And that mindset can just change rather quickly to more parochial, tribal, violent yeah. tendencies. To, to draw an, an, an analogy, if you say, oh, uh, free speech is, is worthless because, you know, the First Amendment was drafted by by white slave owners who cared nothing uh, for, for the rights of, of their slaves, then, you know, that's true. But, you know, democracy was also, uh, you know, excluded uh, women and the poor and the propertyless. So are you going to say, you know, democracy is not worth Defending because those who first gave voice to it had a much more limited um, ideal of, of what democracy uh, is, or because you know the Greeks only allowed freeborn male citizens and not slaves and, and women and and foreigners to to participate. You know, uh, and I think what what is important here are the principles. You know, when you expand those principles uh, and and include more and more groups that were previously excluded. Do things get better or worse? Mm-hmm. I tend to think that when it comes to free speech, you know, things things uh, things get better. And I certainly have not seen any society with with values um, or institutions that I would like to to live under that that do not have a, a critical 
component of free speech protections and, and, and adherence at, at, a, at a cultural level. Um, it's also kind of like a, this is why, this is why free speech matters, right? All of the historical examples that you give, all, all I think almost exclusively, they, they're all saying that, you know, the, the quality of life for all, including minorities and, and the oppressed is almost always better, if not unequivocally always better when there is expansive freedom of speech. I, I don't think you give any historical no. example or am I wrong? No, no. Conversely, which, I would say that's yeah. more, 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 most more importantly, conversely, and that again, this is, this is your case to make, but whenever you do have restrictions, it's, it's, it's going to get not, worse. It's not the powerful who are going to suffer the cost right. of, yeah. of, of restrictions. No, of course, you know, if, if you have free speech restrictions, they will always be defined and enforced by the powerful. <laughs> That 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 is almost you know that's a it's intrinsically logic. true, <laughs> and and you know it, it it you know of course you know if you, if you're Chinese maybe you will argue that uh, life is better without free speech because of of the wealth and stability that has been created uh, compared to compared to to earlier you can certainly make that argument but then you know my values uh, are are. Are, are ones that are incompatible with the with living under a regime like uh, like, like like in China I would very much like to be able to criticize uh, my my government and and, sp- and and speak my mind um so so of course the, there's a bit of, of of subjectivity in it there but I would argue that you know if you look at American attitudes towards interracial marriage and same-sex marriage for instance you see incredible, degrees of increase in intolerance. So I think the Gallup poll of 2021 was 94% acceptance of interracial marriages compared to 4% in 1958. Uh, when it comes to same-sex marriages 20, in 2021, it was like 70% of Americans. That's not much compared to where I'm from, but uh, we'll, give, we'll give you some time to catch up. Uh, but, but it's certainly a, a lot more than, than, you know, just going back to 2010. And, you know, those... Pro- that progress, that social progress, was not achieved through censoring people who were racial uh, bigots or uh, homophobes. Not a single person, I think, <laughs> has been censored or sent to prison for ex- for expressing hostility towards to, towards um, towards uh, the LGBT community or or blacks in in that period. Uh, uh, um, on the contrary, free speech cons- uh, protection under the First Amendment has been increased during that. Period, and that to me suggests very heavily that the first First Amendment values are critical in fostering tolerance. You know, why are more people accepting of of interracial marriage? Well, that's because you know civil rights movement used um, the, the free speech, won some pretty important victories, but also used it to 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 petition to demonstrate unequivocally, you know, the injustice of, of Jim Crow, to have, have newspapers come and, and see, you know, um, peaceful civil rights activists being attacked by dogs, being hosed down, being arrested for holding up a sign one saying one man, one vote. And, you know, um, the, 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 the gay rights movement arguing uh, eloquently for, for, uh, for, for equality under the law that, you know, became very difficult to... <laughs> To, to, to rebut. Uh, and so I think in that sense, uh, free speech ha- has played an incredibly progressive role. You know, I was in Washington, D.C., um, I think last week, 
and and so I, I stayed at a hotel near Lafayette Square, right at, uh, just in front of the White House. And so if you go back to to 1917, uh, American suffragettes w- were were protesting there, and they I think they 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 burned an effigy of President Woodrow Wilson because they demanded the right to vote. So fast forward a hundred years, I'm living on the Upper West Side. I take my son to uh, to to a museum, and when we exit. Uh, there's there are tens of thousands of protesters, most of them women, wearing pink pussy hats and shouting profanities at President Donald Trump. And none of them are arrested. In fact, the NYPD are there to protect their their First Amendment freedom. So to me, that's a, that's a very powerful demonstration of how free speech has in practice, not only in principle, uh, been maybe the most uh, the, the most powerful engine of human equality that, that, that we have ever stumbled upon. And do you, how, how do you characterize our current state of free speech culture? Because that was a very rousing thinking of our through line of American culture, but we're also at a moment where it feels more fragile um, and maybe even more so in Europe. So how, how do you diagnose our current, our current status in terms of free speech? Yeah, I think on one hand, we, we're living in a golden age of free speech. You know, it's a constitutional protected freedom, it's an international human rights norm. Um, you know, you, you're sitting uh, in an apartment in Brooklyn, I'm guessing. <laughs> Queens. Queens, okay. <laughs> uh, and, uh, We're not cool enough for Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, um, and, and, and I'm sitting in Denmark, and we can have an uncensored uh, conversation in, in real time. That's some unimaginable to previous generation. But at the same time, I would say that we're, we're living through a free speech recession where both the culture of free speech, specifically maybe in, in the US, but also the legal protections of free speech, and, and that would be especially in Europe, are being undermined by, by liberal democracies. Uh, you know, it's not it's not surprising to me that the resurgence of authoritarian states is is uh, is, is fueled by censorship and repression because that's the one oh one in the authoritarian's uh, handbook, right? The first victim of of, of authoritarians is free speech, you know, go back to the Athenian democracy, and that's how the oligarch got into power. Um, but, but, but I think there's, a, there's this idea that is gaining ground that free speech entrenches unequal power relations, is a threat to minorities, uh, is, a tr- is a threat to, to just like truth and democracy as such. And therefore, um, um, you know, Elites in among politicians and even in the media who would previously have been have very strong free speech instincts have become more apprehensive about the idea of free speech and, and maybe that it has gone too far and something needs to be done to impose some sort of of semblance of and top down control of an unruly public sphere and and I think you know they're right in that you know that's what Martin Guri describes uh, in his book that you know. We, we are living in a fragmented uh, era where trust in uh, institutions have, 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 have dropped. And, and so it seems like we're living through chaos. And, and when the, the disruption is real, the disruption is real and the harms and costs of free speech have been amplified. Um, and, and I think also as human beings, you know, a, a lot of the harms and costs of free speech we wouldn't necessarily see before because there would be editors and journalists who, who you know, uh, who, would not allow um, certain kinds of, of speech into the public sphere. Now it's there for everyone, for everyone to see. And also, as human beings, I think we tend to take human uh, we, in democracies. We tend to take free speech, all the benefits for granted. So we don't. When we're having this conversation now, 
we're not thinking of it as exercising our right to free speech. You know, you know, we're just we're just talking. We're doing a podcast interview. You know, what we do every day. Um, but you know, if you're in in Russia or in in Iran or Turkey, you know, there could be severe consequences for 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 doing what we do now. Um, and, and at the same time, I think we also have this negativity bias, so we tend to focus myopically almost on the threats or perceived threats uh, and, and harms and costs of, of free speech. And unfortunately, when we do that, the cure uh, tends to be worse than the disease when it, when it comes to, to, to laws and regulations. It's also some complacency, like you said, I think, right? Because you would take so much of this free speech infrastructure for granted. And we just assume that, oh, if we only make those minor tweaks in, in what's permissible, then we get to keep all the good stuff that we got from it, but we'll just rid ourselves of those little tumors. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Good example. So yesterday, the European Commission uh, said that they want to ban uh, Russian propaganda uh, media outlets. RT. Yeah, yeah we, we were going to ask you about and, that. And, yep. and, you know, everyone says, yes, of course, you know, because we're, we're all, you know, affected by what we're seeing. We want to help the Ukrainian people. And, you know, I'm all in favor of really harsh sanctions, uh, but I think this specific one is a really, really bad idea. Um, first, you know, do you really want the European Commission to define what is propaganda, truth and lies in for, for 12, 27 democracies? You know, is that a president that you're comfortable with? It's certainly not a president that I, I would be comfortable with uh, once, once it's introduced. But also, you know, what does it suggest it suggests that people in democracies are so gullible that they will fall for Russian disinformation and propaganda. And what we're seeing is the opposite. The Ukrainian perspective has completely won over at least the platforms of Twitter and, and Facebook and YouTube. Everyone has the Ukrainian flag. Uh, and and, and the, 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 the narrative uh, is very much pro-Ukrainian. And I think, you know, the Russian disinformation and propaganda just looks so weak and, and, and pathetic. Um, and and of, of course, what will happen is that if the commission does it, it will provide talking points, not only to Putin, where he says, oh, yeah, they're, they're saying they're fighting for democracy, but look, they're, they're, they're censoring us. But it will also provide talking points and, and what about points to, to, to sort of uh, Putinists, uh, apologists uh, on the right and left in Western countries who will say, oh, yeah, you're fighting for democracy, but you're no better than uh, than the Russians because you're using uh, uh, censorship. So, so in, in and and of course, the, you know, the, the Russians will respond by kicking out BBC and Deutsche Welle and, and others. And you know, the benefits in democracies of shutting down RT are zero, but the loss of having these small islands of critical journalism in in Russia at this moment are huge. So, so you know, it's. It, it, it's a, it's you know, it's. I think it's really, really a, a harebrained uh, idea, even if I understand what what motivates it. Right, and this to the to the whole point that that um, I, you know, I came in thinking about um, in, after reading your book, and it's something that's on my mind: the different tendencies um, that different groups try to censor, where the right tends to focus on on things like depravity, impiety, the left usually goes to things like incitement or hate and sometimes ideological um, impurity. But in the case of RT, there seems to be like a nice, easy villain for everybody to to target. And they are a villain. But the idea that banning them would matter 
is, is exactly where you find that beautiful bipartisan consensus of how to solve problems in the wrong way. And ironically, at a time, as you point out, that we see that the, I don't remember whose quote it is, the idea that propaganda can heighten the passions of the public, but it can't create them. Yeah, so it's Aldous Huxley, this, this quote from uh, Huxley, yeah, right. 1936. And mm. we see the same playing out right now with, for instance, Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson is another target. People constantly want to encourage ad boycotts, thinking that somehow if they tweet enough about it, Fox is going to fire him. But, or even like cancel culture more generally, right? Like how many people get quote unquote right. canceled and no, then their ratings go through I mean, the roof. Right, right. That, that's for sure. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's stress and effect, right? But, the, but with Tucker Carlson... They, they tried to push him out. And what happened now, like with the latest thing they would try to attack him on, um, I, totally justifiably because his speech was repugnant, was the, has Putin ever done cancel culture to you? <laughs> just, it was, was absolutely insane. But now, what, uh, four or five days later, he, he's completely backtracking and saying Putin is a villain. So he realizes his own position was untenable. It didn't, it didn't need to be canceled to see that everybody who was really into the pro-Putin appeasement has now changed because yeah. propaganda doesn't create those feelings, it exploits them. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And also, you know, if you wanted to to crack down on RT and, and Russian disinformation, you know, what about what about the the, the, the Western-based um, uh, pundits and others who, who, who basically say the same things? Do you also want to go after them? You know, I, right. I, I've been looking at Almost uh, Glenn Greenwald. Yeah, yeah, like Glenn Greenwald's account. You know, I, I think sometimes he's 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 had some some good points, but I'm just like I think when I look at his tweets throughout this conflict, it's one of the most depressing, amoral things. Sort of like looking at through a completely blinkered U.S. centric lens of you know I hate democrats and traditional media and therefore <laughs> i'm going to uh, reflexively oppose anything any, all their takes like oh because they were hypocritical about the iraq war sort of ignoring that a number of european countries and millions of people in in those countries like take france and germany not only opposed the iraq war but are also against uh, putin's uh, invasion of ukraine you know uh, so so um yeah so so so, so that, that that to me is is incredible but but I would defend uh, Glenn Greenwald's right to to to, to incredibly bad uh, takes uh, <laughs> any day of the week. And but if you really wanted to 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 take away Russian uh, uh, propaganda uh, talking point, then arguably arguably you'd have to to go after him uh, as well, and Tucker Carlson, and, and, and you know Steve Bannon, and, uh, and 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 lots of others, both people on the left and the right, because this this Ukraine conflict, you know confirms sort of the horseshoe theory where you have sort of <laughs> people on the, on the left and, and the right who unite in their in, in, in their hatred or dislike of, of liberal democracy. And uh, uh, yeah, so, so uh, I, I, I agree with your take. And, and I, I think it's sad to, to that at this, you know, of course, we don't know what the outcome of Ukraine crisis will be. <clears throat> but, you know, I think... Right now, we, we're seeing a recommitment to di liberal democratic ideals that have sort of been away for a long time, and which arguably is one of the reasons why liberal democracy is in crisis, because we don't feel, you know, th that's also one of the problems with free speech, right? You know, it's not when you're under attack, when you're living in a dictatorship, free speech is something that, that motivates you, that, that creates social cohesion. But once you've won it, once you've lived with free speech, 
it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't bind you in the same way that nationalism or religion uh, does. Uh, and, and so, you know, you can think of it as, you know, oh, why is it so important? It just, just a principle that, that my ideological enemies get to, to spread their propaganda. It was a, a, a story that I keep coming back to in my head. I remember doing some, some reporting two years ago about um, internet shutdowns and the way that um, um, different countries approach this. But one of the depressing trends that you saw that, that you could get um, an alliance between lib- supposed liberal and liberal countries around the world around those, if we just create a, a, a clear enough terminology to what we all agree should be censored, then hmm. that we can move forward with that. And there was a, a, a UN statement, I think, that, that, that countries were working on. I don't remember if it ended up passing or not, that the, um, the Internet San Frontier was fighting harshly against where they were trying to uh, clearly define hate speech, and it seemed, and, and a lot, all the all the all the um, progressives of Europe were rallying behind it. And obviously, this was statements that were were greatly supported by China and Russia. And <laughs> I, I always feel like if you if you find yourself in a place where you you get the full endorsement of China and Russia, maybe maybe you're not servicing liberal yeah. democracy. And and you know. Uh, you see that with with Germany, Germany has adopted this law, the Network Enforcement Act, which is which basically says that tech giants have to remove illegal content within manifest illegal content within twenty four hours or face huge fines. And funnily enough, <clears throat> that law has been copy pasted in bad faith mm-hmm. by by Russia, by Turkey, by Venezuela, uh, by Singapore, uh, all these all these countries that can then again use sort of what a boundary, uh, even though they've it's a much more draconian version that they've adopted and say, well, you know, this is a German law, uh, so why can't we do it if, if Germany can? Yeah. Um, so in our last five minutes, Jacob, I'd like to ask you these these questions about democracy, if you don't mind. So we're going to be having a series of conversations with other folks who think about these questions. And so I just want to get your take on them. They're they're kind of basic, but, but fundamental and <laughs> important, I think. Um, so I'm going to tell you all three questions just so you have like the arc in your mind. Um, so it's just what what constitutes liberal democracy? What is it? Why does it matter? And what is the most important thing we can do to protect liberal democracy today? So what, I'll start at the, the top, what constitutes liberal de- democracy? It, 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 it's, it, it combines popular sovereignty with the with respect and, and dignity and autonomy of, of the individual, uh, along with the independent institutions and, and the rule of law. Um, so, so it's a very delicate ecosystem, which is very difficult, I think, to, to build and, 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 and sustain. And, uh, and, and, and of course it's, it's history is very brief and short. Uh, so, it, but, to me, uh, it, it looks like the, the best system ever invented, so I hope we can keep it. This is, I think, to me, a very interesting question because the, the app, everybody defines or understands the, the key features of a liberal democracy differently, but how they define it usually uh, pertains to why they find it so important, Con- or not important if you're Viktor Orban, but, the, <laughs> um, but still, it's, it, it really depends on the way you define it. For, for instance, for me, you were talking about Pericles. I remember when I was first studying um, um, that oration, that to me... It, shows how free interaction and free speech aren't just the mechanism to protect democracy. They are the raison d'etre of democracy. Free speech is, is not only the, the, the bulwark of liberty, it is the first freedom of, 
of, of democracy. And, and, you know, so it, it really doesn't matter, you know, if you're big into privacy or climate change or any sort of other uh, worthy goal, uh, free speech is really what you want in order to be able to, to, to press your case, to rally for action, to make your argument, to persuade your opponents. And also, you know, I think free speech is really, in a democracy, is, is the antithesis of violence. Uh, it, it, it basically is a commitment to the, to, to the idea that we can settle our differences, that we can be uh, pragmatic uh, and, com- and compromise uh, through discussing different ideas. So in many ways, you know, I've become much more pragmatic on many, on many issues. The one issue where I'm not pragmatic on is, is free speech, because I, th- I see free speech as, as the basis for pragmatism and, and compromise, uh, <laughs> you know, because in order to compromise and, and become pragmatic, you, you need to have a discussion. And, and then, you know, then we can settle on something where we both can, can live with it. And so liberal democracy matters because it is the, the ecosystem that m- more successfully preserves the right to free speech. Yeah, uh, and, and, and along with the along with the, the the other reason, but also you know it it, it allows it gives protection to to uh, to minorities, but it also allows you to 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 basically not be defined by your whatever you know your race or your religion or or or, or the like. Uh, so 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 in in that sense, it's also very liberating for. For, for the individual person, while at the same time you can engage in uh, in communities uh, with others, so so it, it preserves both um, individual autonomy, but also allows you to pursue meaning and uh, in, in groups and in social inter- interactions with others, and and, and that, that I think is, is a great genius of liberal uh, democracy. But it doesn't, but it doesn't. You know, you have to work hard to, to find meaning. <laughs> It doesn't it, offer it's, it's you not, that meaning. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. doesn't prescribe no, it, it, that meaning not, for it's you. Not imposed, it's not imposed on you. So that's uh, that, that's what makes makes it difficult. But but it allows you, you know, to study and, and you know, if you want to be religious, you can be uh, religious. Uh, so, so so in that sense, I think uh, that's also one of the the great things about liberal democracy. So today, you get two arguments against liberal democracy: one from the right, one from the left. The right says that liberal democracy, liberalism, tears us apart because it doesn't offer us a center of meaning, uh, a focus of ideas and ideology. It creates an atomized society with no mutual connections, with no shared values, with no purpose. Accordingly, we need that philosophical, read religious, conformity and orthodoxy to keep us together, to make us thrive as humans. And from the left, the criticism is that liberal democracy is and always has been a charade and it's easily hijacked by the powerful to perpetuate inequality and i think they lob the same criticism at free speech so uh, how do you respond yeah no i i think that uh, there there are fair points in them but i think the alternatives is, is worse and i also you know uh, you know, I wouldn't want to live in a society where Saurabh Amari would de- 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 determined uh, a meaning or the, the the capital good, capital S society. Uh, and I think it's, it's it is perfectly uh, possible to find uh, that uh, that meaning uh, in in, uh, in in liberal democracies. But but you know, I, I myself have have come to emphasize um, 
we have a state church here in, in Denmark. We have a monarchy. I think those are great institutions, actually. Uh, I'm, you know, I can criticize the monarchy. I don't have to be a member of the state church, but I understand that they provide meaning and social cohesion, and we need that in in, uh, in liberal democracies. But those two institutions have been tamed, if you like, and, and sort of robbed of their coercive uh, powers. Uh, and, uh, and and I think that sh- that shows that liberal democracies can be combined with these institutions and rituals. Uh, that that provide meaning to to the individual, uh, but just not in a way where it's imposed um, by uh, by 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 fascists or communists or or, or, or religious totalitarian theocrats. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And if you have ten seconds, is there one thing you'd say is most important for us to protect liberal democracy? Well, it's going to be a huge surprise, but I. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think uh, it'd be a good st- thing to, uh, to 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 start getting serious about uh, free speech, and uh, if we if we manage to safeguard that, I'm I'm confident that we uh, stand on on firm ground. Jakob, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcast. I still owe you more about self-censorship and free speech in general, so stay tuned and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you want to support us. Thank you, and until next time, stay sane. I mean, I always, I, uh, I, I sometimes, not always, definitely not always, but I sometimes think that and then I hear myself and then I hate myself and then I want to kill myself. <laughs> but but I, I think that was okay. Only 26 minutes. Only.